Philosophy is a podcast where we explore the links between success and failure. We look at the challenges that our guests have faced throughout their life and the resilience they use to overcome those challenges and and the effect that those times had on their own life, on their own perspective, on their own philosophies and on the people around them as well and, and how it's affected themselves and their communities. Christine Anu is a friend of mine that we met through the ABC and working on our radio show together, but she's an artist, she's a singer, she's a dancer, she's a dancer, she... Uh, Christine is a very proud mum and she is a person who holds uh, both the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags high as well as the Australian flag and someone who has often been at the front of Australian media and at the front of the discussions around culture and language and that's somewhere uh, that she would like to explore more I think with her own life and this is what you're going to hear in part two of uh, this episode of Philosophy, where you will hear uh, how she met Neil Murray and how her singing career began with that chance meeting at a, a uh, exhibition at the dance academy where she was dancing at NISDA and what became of Christine Arnu just from making a few quick decisions and taking a few opportunities that sort of fell in her lap that weren't necessarily easy decisions to make, but uh, what that led to in her life and the challenges that those decisions brought to her life and how she has overcome those and how she is continually learning as a mum, as a cultural and media personality. So here it is, Christine Arnu, part two on Philosophy. We finished part one with Christine telling us how her singing career began and it actually started through a dancing academy and after she'd done a few years at NISDA, at the the dance academy there, they were doing their annual exhibition and who should turn up but Neil Murray from Warumpi Band. It was my last final year and I met Neil Murray who wrote My Island Home and he was introduced to me as one of the Warumpi Band members, and I was like, well, what, 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 who, what? Never heard of them. Like, I'd been that sheltered, I'd never even heard of Aboriginal bands, you know? Oh, um, right. I hadn't... So that was a mind-blowing anyway. Yeah, I hadn't, exactly. And then, I mean, they're, they're, the, they're the original Yothu, you know, Yothu Indy. Yeah. Um, they, they were making it big long before I even, you know, knew how to scratch my bum, but... They were, this, this is, so he was introduced as the guy who wrote My Island Home. How did I know My Island Home? Because every p- student party that we'd ever be at, of course there'd be a guitar lying around somewhere. And it's always like, come on, Christine, come over, you, you sing Island Home with us. And I'm like, but I don't know the song. And I remember one, late, one girl, she turned around to me and looked at me and utter, absolute disgust. <laughs> she was like, you don't know who the Warumpi Band are? You don't know my island home, girl. You got a lot of education to get into, <laughs> and so that was the beginning of it. Like it was 1988, the year of the bicentenary, and it was a, it was a good time to be have be in my formative self, my formative years, trying to find who I am, because parades and um, marches, those sorts of things, were only ever things I'd seen on the news at home. But this is this now. I was in them, 
Now I was a part of it. Now I was having an opportunity to hear what my voice could sound like. And it was, uh, I can't replace those years. So was I supposed to start out with dance first? Absolutely. And why? Because I was supposed to meet Neil Murray exactly at that time when I was graduating. He would give me my first job as a singer doing BVs, which is backing vocals in his band, The Rainmakers. How did he know um, you could – when he – like how did that introduction actually happen? To the sh- he, he came to the school. The school had this um, – so I was there for five years. I did the five-year course. Um, the school had an annual May workshop where they open up their doors to the subscribers, um, the, the fellows of the actual, of NASDA, um, teachers, former dance teachers, anything, anybody associated with the arts community and the local community. Uh, plus primary schools and anybody who'd want to come and watch us do our workshops. Um, and, you know, so first year would have uh, a, a dance piece done by Chrissy Coltai. Um, second year would have a dance piece done by Paul Saliba and so on and so forth, third, mm. fourth, fifth. And then at the end of it, we'd do the Aboriginal dancers from the tutors that had joined us and we'd do the Torres Strait dancers from the tutors who'd come down from the Torres Strait. Um, and and join us for that. So Neil was invited by one of the girls in my year because they knew each other. And he came along and he heard me singing the songs of Yam Island, which is Central Torres Strait. And he asked Frances Rings, who you, you would know that name because she works uh, with Bangara. She's a graduate of Bangara and works um, as uh, the artistic director, assistant artistic director next to Stephen Page. So she said, oh, look, mate, Neil's, Neil Murray, he asked after you. He's quite impressed with your singing. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, people always offer you something and it never comes through. Yeah. She said, um, he, he'd really like to have a chat to you. Here's his phone number. Um, I'd, I'd, go, I'd come with you, but I'm off to New Zealand because I, I've got a gig over there. So um, give him a call. He's a nice guy. So I gave him a call and he said, look, if you're interested, I'd, I'd love to try you out um, for my gig uh, coming up um, very, very soon. So I would rehearse for two weeks in Annandale on his front porch, all of the songs that he wanted me to learn BBs for, all good. Um, and then then there was my christening at the Sylvania Waters Hotel. There you go. <laughs> and that was rowdy. Isn't it unreal how things will just fall out of the sky and, you know, you didn't have to make that phone call. You didn't have to, no, you know, it, no. it, 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 you still and had to And he didn't have to come started. to the school. Yeah. Yeah. I still had to keep it. He didn't have to come to the school. I, I didn't have to make that phone call. And I thought, you know, actually what have I got to lose Was has always been one of those mottos. What, what have I got to lose? Because, you know, although failure is not an option, it comes along with life. Mm-hmm. and Everyone should, you know, accept failure with open arms because you learn outside your comfort zone. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from from failure because mm. you've got to bounce up from somewhere. And if not, if that wasn't going to work, I always I was always going into my first year with Bengala. Anyways, yeah, yeah. So you had a solid plan, which was going. Yeah, it was. It was just, it was just, look, if things work out, they work out. If they don't, everything happens for a reason. That's my mother's motto. And um, I got to 
not just do really well, but I got to gig with Neil Murray in on Hey Hey It's Saturday, um, every pub gig from Melbourne to Sydney to Brisbane for eight months without telling the school that I was doing that on the sidelines oh, because no it wasn't supposed to be, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, but obviously how can you hide from anyone if somebody spots you on Hey Hey It's Saturday? Exactly. Um, <laughs> singing Holy Road with, you know, because uh, Marsha Hines did the BBs on the actual single of Neil Murray's because they're, they're really good friends. Um, and uh, when Marsha couldn't do the gigs, I basically would do cover the Marsha part from the single. So I don't know. No one ever pulled me up about it, but I remember the uh, CEO giving me one of those side eyes with a you know cheeky smirk on his face, <laughs> um, thinking to myself, "Yeah, he's letting me get away with this." I think he's sort of just going, you know. Hopefully, this school is about you know opening up opportunities for these young people, and and, and you know it's so true. Five years is such a big, long time to give up your life for something mm-hmm. and then eventually do nothing with it. That's a, that's a big invest, investment on your learning and education. And Yeah, I, th- uh, I think there would be I quite a few people who didn't know you had a, a history in, in dance. Without... And that's the beauty mm. That's the beauty of it because if they, if, if they don't know much about you, then there's, you, you're, you have – there's no expectations on you. No mm. one's, and then they're pleasantly surprised when you pull out this – what the heck, you know, you, you, you move. Oh, and well, where do you think, you know, I, I had a physique that was a dancer's physique and I, I, I moved and, and I could sing as well. So there was the triple threat by the, there was the, the package that was delivered to Michael Godinsky at Mushroom Records. And because the guy who did that, who brokered that, um, Con- that deal, that that actual meeting with Michael himself, uh, he Michael flew me down from Sydney uh, to Melbourne to see him, and when he brokered that deal, he said, "Look, um, because I look after Paul Kelly, um, I, and Paul Kelly signed with M- Michael Gudinski, I think this is where you should come. Mm. Keep it in the. And know, he wasn't it's wrong. About Australian, it's about Australian product and. Um, How, and and, the, and then, one, then one began the my rock education. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to ask you before we step too far away from the dance side of things. What What's the relationship like for you between the two? I mean, do you, do you still do a little bit of dance? And and how do you? when you were sort of identifying with yourself and your culture through your dance compared to how you do it with your singing, is there just a crossover with how you uh, relate to those two art forms? I don't dance anymore. Um, when when my rela- when my relationship ended with my first management, so too was that previous vision of how I toured, how I presented in public. So my tours always had dancers. Mm. Um, there was always choreography involved. And then my former manage, management um, recently departed from, uh, that wasn't their vision. So it was about always about uh, keeping the overheads to a minimum. So that means not paying extra staff if we don't need to. So all of a sudden, dance is no longer a part of my outfit when I'm out on the road or doing any of the shows. 
And I guess when that happened, so many other things happened as well. Like I, I guess I got out of shape. I just, you know, um, I, I didn't need to feel like there was an upkeep for that. And, yeah, it, it became something that I just let go of because, it wasn't a necessity to keep it as a part of me if people didn't think that I that was it, that was me anyway. Mm. I didn't feel it would like people uh, expected dance as part of my package. It, it sounds so, like it's something that you have missed looking back on it. Yeah, well, it was it was a hard it was a hard moment in time when I was faced by I had to face the music because. The artistic director, Stephen Page, asked the assistant artistic director, um, you know, who was making a bit of a, you know, commotion about, look, she's either here to rehearse and not running running off to do her, her uh, music commitments or she just forgets about dance altogether and just goes and follows the music career. Um, and it was a, it was a harsh conversation to have uh, but it was backed very nicely by you know you, you know you can always you've always got a place to come back to if if, if, it, if things don't turn out but fortunately they did and and Stephen and the Bangara dancers were very very present in that very early part of the first album either on tour in video clips um, choreography dancers you name it um, Bangara but then of course Bangara started like it things went off for Bangara and they started doing world tours and um so that that relationship sort of separated as well um but yeah I I it was a I did have to decide between the two I was I was forced to decide to yeah give up um my position as um a second year dancer at, at Bangara and go off and do the singing so what's it like once you you do make that decision, and as you said, it, it was a good decision to make. You've you've had great success in in that area, and um, you know some challenges that we might touch on soon. What was it like when going? You know, you've been in Brisbane. You've then moved back home to the Torres. You, you, you're an island girl. Then you all of a sudden, you know, you, you're at boarding school, and then you're back in Sydney, and you're singing for this, you know, really successful band, and you're on TV. You know, how are you? shaping at this point with your identity and your culture and your art form and, and how are you feeling? Are you feeling like you know who you are at this point in time? I mean, it's something that we always question, I think. Um, but as you're coming into the success of your first album, the tours are all happening. How are you feeling with your culture and your identity? I was a fish out of water when I first started in the as a backing singer with Neil and it was really, I had a very shy personality, at least with, at least with dancing. I didn't, I didn't need to speak. It wasn't like I had to stand in front of people and hold their attention. I could do that through my movement and, and physicalize what I was, it felt safer in that environment. Uh, when I was on stage as a singer, it just, being in front of of, of, of faces, it was, it's quite confronting. And every gig we ever did for that, I think it was eight months of um, gigging with Neil, 
he never ever, we never ever went to a gig where a person never yelled out smiles in my own home. He, he'd do it begrudgingly because <laughs> he's trying to move away from, his, you know, it's not, it's the sum of him. It's not yeah. who he is. You know? yeah. um, he turned to me and he said, you have to do this song now. It's, I've got to, I've got to hand the baton over. It's, it's, you've got to do this song. I felt an, I felt scared and a, and a real responsibility to be taking a song that I knew was extremely loved by mm-hmm. all blackfellas around the nation. And true, true to my thoughts, p- people would say, "Ah, she's ruined it. She's ruined it." You know, <laughs> I, I didn't get a lot of fans in the early days um, amongst um, the community because it's a. It's, it's a rumpy song, and it's, there's a particular voice that they, you know, want singing it, and there's a particular sound that fit it. Um, and in terms of the evolution of, I guess, melding the singing and the dance, the singer and the dancer together, it was it was plain to see that what I was already doing as a dancer where contemporary movement and traditional movements could live and coexist within the same piece, mm. choreographic piece, it would, it would make the, it makes a piece of dance look absolutely unbelievably unique and different and beautiful art form to watch. And so I kind of, I floated on that idea into the music, into writing my album and meeting David Bridie and listening to his experiences working with George Tellick from Papua New Guinea. Um, and he, because of his sensibilities of working with people of the Melanesian culture and he could speak a little bit of um, Pisin. I just felt that he would know how the language element would be an important part of how I would bring what's important to me, mm. our languages, into the contemporary space, music space. Uh, I really knew at that moment in time that my sound would be very different from everybody else's and that made me feel very strong and empowered. I, I I already knew that what that what what it was going to be. It wasn't like we sat around scratching our heads. However, I would have loved to have had um, a bit of investment in money and time to develop the sound a little bit more. Mm. But it was like once I was once they pushed me in, it was in the deep end. It was like sink or swim. And so I had to just uh, I don't know. I wasn't a songwriter. I had to just do pull pull stuff out of places I never knew existed, you know, and put this this album together, but also know that David was very sensitive to the the nuances that I wanted represented on that album, which is family, community, culture, language, yet have, have a very different and breath of fresh air statement to make for the commercial Australian arena because we needed somebody like me, I think, at that time. You know, everything's about timing and I think where I was and how that was how I was positioned by Mushroom, it, it all had to do with being at the right place at the right time.
you were saying you wanted to bring that culture and and you wanted to be the community in that language and it's you know having worked with you on our show at the ABC you know it's something that you, we've constantly talked about and and we're always looking for ways to do it without being um, you know a slap in the face of culture or that that kind of you know we wanted to look past just being trying to promote a First Nations idea and actually just celebrating community and culture through all, all lenses. I wanted my culture to be something that people felt that if they can approach it and not feel like it's something that they don't know and it's foreign yet it's Australian because mm. I often feel I, I grew up feeling like a foreigner in my own country. You know, and I, I, I just wanted, I wanted, I, I reveled in the idea of the end result being on rage or on radio, and not, not. It was important that other young women who look like me see another person on television and know that they could do that and be that, because mm. there wasn't, there wasn't enough of that around when I was growing up, and I wanted, I wanted what I have in my life to be accessible to everybody. And I knew that not exploitation, but commercial. That's what I was going to ask. Is there a pressure that yeah. comes with it, though, as well? Is there a pressure that comes with being a leader in the community and, and thinking that you have to carry it, you know, and be a certain way? Or, or are you sort of, is there a freedom there that you can bring your own? I mean, Styling Up is a commercial pop album, you know, that there's. Well, and it also happened in 1993, you know, with Last Train, which is a Paul Kelly cover. Right. And that was my first nomination in um, debut, debut single, debut artist category in, at the Arias in 1993, which is also the Year of Indigenous People. So I was touring the world with Bangara as well at the same time. <laughs> everything was going on. Awesome. And I just, I knew, I, I knew that it was different. I knew that there was something special about what was happening that the people, what people were investing in. And see, Michael's a really big, he has a lot of insight um, as far as music goes to knowing what what will work. And he, he when he saw how that could be represented for the record company, and remember, they've got Yossi India as well. Mm. So they've got two crackers on the, you know, like this is, this is what we have. And it's unique. It's not, anywhere else in any other record company at this moment in time. Mm. This was this was all coming out and this was a it was a massive learning curve for me because since then I had to take a different direction in terms of writing with language in it and and the usage of what I could put in there. Because what pressures do come with being a leader is being mindful of the cultural protocols around, you know, I talk about it all the time. Eddie Marbo, who went to the High Court in this ten-year court battle to try to explain that we that the, that the Murray Islanders already had laws that existed, and it's based around this one saying called "Tag Malki Malki Teter Malki Malki," and that means you don't come onto my land without my permission. You don't take what's not yours. So people had identified to me that there were things on my first album that I should have had permission and sought permission for. Right. That learning experience for me was so massive and it was so heartfelt that there was never any malice intended. I, 
I was merely celebrating my heritage through through that album, mm. giving all the voices in my upbringing uh, a way to sort of praise them through music, through the music that I was creating. And it was it was very it was hard. It was hard because how would there come a time that I could redeem myself? I couldn't. But I'm, I've gone through that wilderness now and I'm out the other side, back working with David Bridie on a whole same, same concept but a matured down the path style. Because it's less time, about the commercial side, I imagine, and about the cultural respect. Cultural, about, yeah. yeah. You know, look, if you're going to use the cultural um, side of things, you've got to do it properly. Mm. And since then, oh, my gosh, have things changed? There is just the way in which we go about using um, culture in our artistic um, interpretations, that's that's really come a long way. That's very, it's changed a lot now. And one of the things that um, I've come to embrace is m- knowing and learning that my granddad was a massive um, Torres Strait Island language composer. His songs are in Iatsis and... Those those songs I have with me, plus the musicologist Wolfgang, Wolfgang Lardy's um, transcripts of the recordings of my granddad and and other members of the Cassowary clan up in Bamiga. So that was nice to obtain that during the filming of SBS's Who Do You Think You Are. So once I got all of that material, I, now I can put Granddad. In in um uh, in APRA, he's down as a name, and I would be the person who th- those songs would go under, um, so that my da- granddad's That's songs so would be published under Christine Anu, right. and I can now use those songs on my future albums and works because they belong to the family, and no one can turn around and say, "Oh, but you didn't get permission to sing that song when it was written by my granddad." And he can keep his music and his art alive as well. That's incredible. Correct, correct, and, and pass it correct, on to all your family. Yeah, and so so there's a, there's a style and up part two about to come out. It's not going to be called that, but it's. It, it's <laughs> I was of, going to ask. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's the more evolved sort of you know the mature level of it. And da- you know, da- David and I are older met and older people now. You know, he's moved to Apollo Bay to. To, to do his art there, I, I've evolved, you know, to be not so based around the city and be more close at connect, closely connected to the ocean, which is where my heart lies. Mm. Um, and I think this is going to be – I'm so excited about it because my mother, um, uh, this, you know, fuck COVID, I hate you, um, <laughs> but, you know, if I was able to go home for Christmas – we would have been there. Would have been a film crew and um, audio of footage of my mum singing Grandad songs, but also writing her own original stuff, so that she has a song or two that is her legacy on the, on the album, so that um, you know the the faces of tomorrow that will never get to meet their great grandmother or their grandmother, uh, great great grandmother, um, will have something of hers to own. Damn you, COVID. <laughs> what a pain in the ass. Yeah. I know that's yeah. exactly, that's where you're meant to be. That, that We wouldn't have been talking otherwise you would have been up there uh, with <laughs> your cameras, and, um, but COVID certainly shut the, that down quickly. But 
Christine, it's it's been an incredible career for you and, and you've had to sort of trailblaze your way through certain areas. You know, what was it like? Were you was there a point in time when you felt that you had lost control of your career and needed to turn things around? How and how did you sort of face that challenge and, and where did it uh, come from? Yeah, to, there was there have been many times throughout my career where I felt that I this was possibly not going my way and that uh, the the team of people around me were probably not working toward the same goals and visions that I had. And when you get to that point, what do you do? I, I, I was really, I kind of felt a little bit lost and not sure how to go about cutting that those ties. I, I, I really had no idea about how to end relationships other than people saying, shouldn't it be easier picking up the phone and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I was like, yes, but after 17 years, you can't really, it's not really like that. And um, when you stop having your own creative input and start letting other people making, make, make the decisions, there comes a point when they think they're running the Christine Arnoux show and forget that you still have the last say. And that Christine, Christine Arnoux is a person and not just a product. Yeah, it, it, it's, not, it's not a product. And, and, you know, uh, and you start to wonder, are you living vicariously through, my, through me, you know, through my, my status, you know, through, through what I've created? Um, and you start to see that people for who they are and, and you start to see that this is, I, I, what I did was I, I, I completely shut down. I, I shut down all of my doors and windows and I just, I, I closed up. I couldn't, I stopped being able to know how to communicate. I didn't want to be a part of my own career anymore because it had gotten so out of hand being run by somebody else, fully run by somebody else. And the failure in not stopping it when I could have because the repercussions are that what starts reflecting badly on you is that when people aren't getting paid or these things start to go wrong here or there. It's it's not them paying. It's not their name that's attached to that. I'm sorry to say, it's you. Mm. And I kind of, when I shut my doors and you know shut all myself down, I I let my business down. I let my name down. And there is a fine point between ruining your reputation and anybody's desire to ever work with you again, um, to people being staunch and staying beside you those sorts of moments you really see it's oil and water. You really know what for people who fall away weren't meant, weren't meant to be there and the people that really stick beside you. Um, and those people are still there and have, you know, I, I guess I could say saved my life because you – you, when you think that you're in, you've sunken so low that there's, that you don't know how to get up, 
you don't see those people that are there. You don't because mm. you're so, I guess you're so. It's hard to see past inside yourself, really. Of yourself. Yeah, you can't. Mm. You just can't get past your own um, misery, you know, like, or, or, you know, oh, my God, I'm, I'm never, if this is never, I'm never going to be success, successful again. Mm. And, you know, you know what the little voice says? You, you, nobody gave you what you have. That's, that came from you. Mm. That's all you. Your voice, your image, everything you say out there in the media, you know, this amount of years that I've been working in the industry, that's all me, you know. Yes, there's a team of people around you. Yes, there are people that you need to give gratitude to for helping you along, but that's the, the who puts in the essential hard work is the person who's out there copying the flack when the flack hits the fan. Mm. When did you realise that, that you had made the right decision and, and, and what has it meant for you after that? When I made that decision to change things was when I realised how serious my daughter Zipporah had become about wanting to enter the entertainment industry. I quickly popped my, you know, shoulders back and my my chest out and lifted my head with warrior pride because I needed to show her that when it hits the dumps, it's you. It's not you. Don't just stall. You don't just give up and take your bat and ball and go home. This will happen intermittent, intermittently throughout your life, whether it's your career or personal life. This, or sometimes those things will will intertwine or cross over, and you need to find a way to get back on that bike and just keep pedaling as fast as you possibly can. I think that's when I realised that I was actually having a, having a pity party, and that I just I I needed to own my own brand and take that bloody thing back. So there is there there was everything about what I've done in my life was just staring at me in my face, and I don't I never I I don't acknowledge those things. I don't acknowledge every day the things that I've done enough and when you when you start to do that when you start to see what you've done and for me it was a matter of bringing Zipporah with me to the shed opening opening up several boxes and just going through all of the media throughout the years cut clippings that I've kept photographs from from the beginning of my career till now and being absolutely slapped in the face with just how extraordinary it's been, really. And so easy to forget. You know, and, and I just I just went, you know, God, I'm good. <laughs> or, you know, just, there's, 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 people don't stick around um, this long if there's not something about what you do uh, that touches people. It makes people want more of what you have to offer. And there's something so really I have in more to offer. taking stock as well. You know, we uh, I was only having the conversation with my old man the other day, you know, when I was having a little bit of a pity party for myself, just mm-hmm. not knowing what was happening in my life. And, and he said, you know, you just got to look back at the year you've had, mate. You know, we see it, I think, as a community sometimes, for me anyway, and, and correct me if you see it differently, 
you do look at you know when you're talking about how oh, you know I was so I was really successful and I did this and I did this and people go oh, well yeah well good on you you know but I think mm. I think we need to celebrate that more in community and and I think we should feel proud to 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 push it out there and say you know look at what we've done together and like you said you're still owing gratitude to those who have helped you along the way. Mm-hmm. I think too, I think sometimes there are elements of self-loathing that that gets in the way, mm. that stops, prevents you from seeing the things that, that, are, that you're attached to that are great, like the responses to the things that you've done have been great. Like um, I'm, I'm sound of hearing and I'm, and my eyesight, although possibly has gone quicker than I ever thought <laughs> since I've turned 50, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm able-bodied, I'm, you know, I have a sound mind. And all of these things surely should inform me that what I'm seeing in front of me has, is, an, is the after effects of what I've put in. You know, I think I need to be grateful. It's just, that's all it is. I just need to be grateful that I have what I have and I am in a position to use it to benefit myself and my family and my extended family and community and and therefore the, my culture and, the, and, and you know, the, the leadership um, that I would like to be heading more into. Uh, these All of these things you, you work your whole lifetime for and, and I had, that's what I was looking back on. It's like, hang on, hang on a second, this, this is a lot of years. I'm I'm ready for for so much more, I'm, and there's still so much more to give, and that's where the that's where you ignite that fire and passion again, because you talk like that to yourself, and you because got, you say you made the decisions yeah. to get the control back, you know, you, and you just yeah. and you made yeah. it's really it came down to you you making some strong decisions. That's what it's about making some strong decisions. It's it's making decisions that um might not be nice for the other party concerned but really it's it's at the end of the day it's we all need to be happy we all need to be mm. we need to shine inside of the, the thing the very thing that we are passionate about and that we love to do and you can only do that by cutting the things that are stopping your creative flow and and stopping the good people from coming to you you know those those energies. If you think about something right now, and and it's a face, or it's a, I don't know what it would be, and 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 you feel like it's a it's a block, something that's blocking you, cut it out, get rid of it. It's not meant to be there. And you know, and you 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 your voice is does deserve to be heard, and that that's that's I think that's that had to come with age for me. It's pure and simple. Mm. It does deserve to be heard. I have a lot to say and I'm happy to say it. It's all of those things. And I'm so glad you are. And look, I know like we're, we've been speaking for a little while now, but there is something I really want to speak with you and, and we can maybe, I'm sure we can sit down again, uh, even if we might even get another little show happening, who knows. But mm. one thing that I have loved, and I touched on it in the intro, in learning with you and working with you and seeing each other as equals and coming from such different backgrounds, you know, with, with me, a white fella who's had a, a, a lucky, privileged life and and you, as you've just discussed through all your, um, through your life and through your hardships and, and the life that you live now, 
is the ability to share culture and and share a life where we uh, did see each other completely as equal and and I felt in a safe place to talk to you about my sort of lack of knowledge of our First Nations and culture and land and and you know we've sat down we've done one part of a cultural education program that that you're getting you and your team to do with everyone and you know and, and it it made me realize even more where I where I once used to be this guy who went to a NADOC function and you know went and lined up to get this hat that was a really cool you know black and red cap and it had deadly in yellow written across the front and yeah. all you had to say was um you know oh, what a deadly what does deadly mean to you and I froze all of a sudden at the front of this line and I was like oh shit but I'm a white fella am I allowed to say what what I think about it and then I came out with something like oh it's like um indigenous for cool and stuff yep and she just looked at me and goes you can have that (laughs) (laughs) just going oh what did I do why did you know because all of a sudden I felt like I wasn't allowed to talk about it or show that I understood it or even use the language but I've realized that's bullshit (laughs) you know and if you can yeah. celebrate it and you can feel a part of it, you know, it goes both ways and that we should we should be able to pull down these awkward walls around us and be able to just say, you know what, I don't actually understand what that means. What is it? Why do you dance like that? Why do you put the paint on? Or, you know, what does it mean for this? And we should feel comfortable just to, to say that we don't understand and we don't know it coming from a white fella's perspective. And, you know, and you'll soon learn that black fellas are very embracing, very accepting yes. of, of, you know, you just got to be a good fella, you know? Yeah. That, that's, that's, it's not never been about anything. It's just when people are very verbally and outwardly ignorant and, and don't care that they are being disrespectful, that I think that's where the, the sorts of differences of, you know, how, we, how people see each other because it's just people – Seeing other people, it's, it's mm. people seeing people for who they are. Mm. It's got nothing, for the most part, to do with race. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah, it's and it feels like the race side comes from the white side more so because of this problem where they've just over, you know, it's been talked about too much, and there's been it's they've overthought it, and it's just become this political nightmare. When really all we want to do is sit around and have a yarn and get to know each other better. Well, I think racism becomes racism when when the, when the, when labels start to come into it. Mm. When you start to label people and get derogatory about um, features, about mm. uh, actions, about cultural habits, about people's food choices, you know, mm. it, it starts to become that. That those those are obvious racial things to me, but. You know, from human to human, it's just the way you treat each other at the end of the day. And that's got nothing to do with race. It's got to do with a person's lack of ability to see another person for who they are. Because you know what? We all hang our ass over the toilet and do the same thing. (laughs) If we're lucky, we've got a toilet. I think, I reckon you're the first guest I've had that where we've talked about pooping and asses probably four or five times throughout the hour. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great. And it's so true. You should hang out in my house. You should hang out at my household because it's great dinner conversation. <laughs> uh, well, one day we will. This is uh, that's what yep. we were meant to be doing: uh, sitting in your place, having a, a cuppa with Arnie Christine or Sis, as I uh, yeah. I call you. And yeah, and yeah, look, 
I've said it a few times, but I just wanted to say thank you so much, uh, A, for coming on and being a part of Philosophy and, and taking us through uh, just a speck of your life and, and what it's been like for you and the challenges that you've faced and, and, and uh, the resilience you've used over and over again to continually grow and become, a, you know, the leader you are in our community. And, and you know, I've seen just the love and respect that comes through our radio show that we've done together and, and from getting to know you and know the people around you. So um, I hope you do know that how loved you are and how important you are and thank you. Big hug to you and your mob and um, if we don't speak before Christmas, um, Merry Christmas Yes. Uh, and a fabulous, fabulous New Year. When I wake up in the morning, I'm watching the diet. It's always coming and going, coming and going like good, bad, and old news, like the monkey telling the turtle what to do. Go fish, go sleep, go yarn through the day. Yamaki and it's all I am from long way. The tourist, the straight, I talk about with the sway of the trees in the Where the 